Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. Now, one of my favorite parts of recording these podcasts is finding founders who are using technology to systematically disrupt clunky old business practices and replace them with new ones. And to my mind, one of the best examples of this is in the content streaming industry. 20 years ago, content creation and distribution was well intermediated. The market was consolidated with high barriers to entry. Now those barriers have come down significantly and content producers can build strong direct consumer businesses. My guest this week has capitalized on this trend. His name is Gregor Angus. He's the founder of True Royalty TV, an on-demand subscription channel that focuses entirely on royalty. Now the lion's share of the content is on the British royals, but it also includes royals from around the world and indeed history. And it is a brilliant business model, which I'll let Gregor describe. We'll also cover his background, how he got into content creation, raising capital, and what the future holds for the franchise. So without further ado, this is the Why Invest podcast. Gregor Angus, welcome to the podcast. Gregor, we're going to start with your background. Where did you grow up? Where did you study? And how did you start your career? Thanks, Doug. Thanks for having me on. I'm a Montrealer. I always say that I have multiple inferiority complexes. I'm an Anglophone in Montreal, suppressed by the Francophone Montrealers who are within Quebec, suppressed by the Quebecois, within Canada, suppressed by the Canadians. The Canadians, of course, are suppressed by Americans and the Brits. So I have quite a lot of complexes, but I'm English-speaking of Scottish descent Montrealer. I grew up there, went away to university in Ontario. Wasn't smart enough to get into the Ivy Leagues, but I wanted to beat them all at squash, which we did from the University of Western Ontario, and eventually made my way to London. And then what did you do when you were first in London? Hopefully you left your inferiority complex at the passport gate. Oh, I've still got some, <laughs> for sure. But, but now, now I'm trying to suppress North America from here. No, I'm, I'm in London now. I came over, I guess it's 11 years ago, initially with the group I was working for, the Marketing Communications Diversified Marketing Agency Group, not unlike WPP or Omnicom, but on a smaller scale, a Canadian firm, a great, great, great entrepreneurial story where basically they retained big global brands that were being aligned in big agency networks, but it was recognized that the, the work they did the connections they had in Canada and Quebec were such that they should keep the work, do original campaigns and creative. We're talking about Nike, Coca-Cola, McDonald's, General Motors. So an amazing story. I grew up in that environment, learning all about marketing, not just advertising, which is a bit of a pejorative way of, but during the, the digital revolution, because it was such a properly diversified group with their hands in all the various marketing activities of our clients, it gave a really interesting way of, of becoming a, a rounded marketer in the transforming world of the digital revolution. I left that group. Their name was Cosette and for a while ran a, a big agency network out of Montreal, the BBDO group, part of Omnicom, but was lured back on the promise that they were basically changing generation, going to reprivatize the Cosette group and internationalize, take their concept and their platform internationally. They had acquired agencies that needed to be integrated. Eventually, my gig was to come to London and do the post 
acquisition integration of agencies that had been acquired. We had a PE backer, and ultimately was, <laughs> as these things often are concluded, they didn't want to build out the concept they wanted to consolidate and maximize and, and ultimately sell. Cosette as a more profitable business, which ultimately they did. I left before that happened. I was to go back to Canada and uh, play a role in the mothership, but chose to stay in London with my wife and young family and start the second half, as they called it, from London. What better place? It was a bit crazy because I didn't have a job, <laughs> two young kids, but you got to try. You got to take chances if you want new stuff to happen. And, and that's what's happened. And so quite a corporate background on the sort of agency side. But then what drew you to the opportunity in cloud-based TV? Well, while I didn't have a job, I got into various consultancies. And again, it was, you know, it was moving from the last thing London needed at that time was a 45-year-old ad man. There was a lot of those that the digital revolution had spat out. And a lot of those that are probably better than I was. <laughs> and I was from Montreal. So I was reinventing myself and at the same time paying some bills by doing some consultancy gigs that were related to marketing and brand and communications. And one of them had me helping a friend who had gotten involved in a streaming company called Magin, M-A-G-I-N-E, in Stockholm. And they had a great platform. They also had a vision toward basically disrupting cable with streaming, a lot less expensive tech but going in with a similar model of some free television and pay packs. I helped them launch into Germany during the World Cup that was in Brazil at that time. So catch-up TV was a big thing, and on-demand streaming enabled that. I learned a lot from them of what streaming was enabling, and more importantly than what they were doing with localized, competitive services to the incumbent technology was what could be done globally. If you found a very specific proposition, that when you look at the audience base, not within a region, but around the world, you say, that's a really interesting potential business. It gives more people what they want specifically, more efficiently, enabled by streaming. And streaming was perfecting. So once I was done advising Magin, and I was back in London full-time thinking about this, thinking about what I learned, and, and frankly, that's what people wanted to talk to me about, because I'd, I'd had the experience people that wanted to go direct to consumer, they had some content, they had access to the content, could be educational. There was a concept of doing a Netflix for all the Chinese outside of China. So getting your hands on all the content that viewers in China are watching, but for those, the 50 million Chinese that are not currently living in China, creating something for them. Great idea, huge idea, very hard to pull off. But the most interesting, as really at heart a marketer, most interesting conversation I had, which led to what I'm doing now, was a friend who I'd worked with previously introduced me to who would become our third business partner, Nick Bullen, who runs Spun Gold Television, Factual TV. They supply content to ITV, BBC, NBC, Fox, you name it, CNN, really blue chip quality factual content. One of the specialties they had was royal content. And they've been doing that really for Nick's whole career. There's the craft, but there's the relationships, there's the know-how, there's the contacts. So it's a pretty specialized, difficult thing to do unless you've done it before. You're never approved by one of the households or palaces. 
but you can be acceptable and a safe pair of hands. That's what Nick was. He said, I, I'd like to modernize. I'd like to go digital. How do you deal with the fact that I have a library that sits on a shelf once it's been used once by ITV? I own that library. How do you go direct to consumer? What's the way? You know, my instincts are we have to do something digital. What does that look like? I said, well, I'll write up a plan this summer. I was going to take the summer off. But if you don't execute the plan, you'll pay me X, a big chunky number, because it's my know-how of the last couple of years. Or if it's compelling and you choose to do it, I'll stick around, help you try and raise the money and maybe even take part. Here we are, <laughs> four years later, I'm deep, deep, deep in it. Well, that was exactly, so that must have been 2018 that you had those conversations and, and found it. 17 was the, was the challenge. Uh, we, we had a midpoint meeting halfway through August and uh, should I keep going? And we all looked at each other. It's just weird that no one's done it before. We got to do it. And so that was the summer of 17. And so let's introduce then True Royalty, your current company. It sounds like you had a good combination of you on the sort of streaming side and your partners on the content side. I wonder when you started the company, what was in the business plan? What was the value proposition as, as you understood it back then? It's still pretty much what it was, what the intention was. It's a royal TV channel led by the Premier League, which is the British Royals and other monarchies follow along behind that as people want to go deeper and deeper, deeper within the, the British Royals, led by the big occasions like the birthdays and the weddings and this and that. But for the super fan, they want to know what's happening in between those events and what's happening day to day, and what they eat and where they go on vacation, how they dress and how they used to do that 100 years ago and so on and so forth. And so we talked about giving royal fans the context, the backstory and the truth to royal content. It was obviously an aggregation of all the existing documentaries out there but we would layer on some current news about the royals as a bit of a funnel into a deeper study of a typical area or a typical family or monarchy or part of the world. It ends up today being a really interesting lens to learn history, frankly, about the British royals and extensions of the British royals, but other parts of the world, you know, Burma. You watch a documentary about the Burmese royals or I learned a lot about Libya myself on a cross trainer watching documentaries about the Libyan royal family. So it strikes me as a, an incredibly niche, I don't know what the right terminology is, and forgive me if I get it wrong, but it seems to me it's a very niche sort of vertical within in the sort of media landscape. I wonder if the customer base is also very niche and is it very difficult to access them as a result? We had our theories and, and, you know, to sell the concept, to raise the initial investment, you pull the obvious statistics out. How many people are following them on social? How many articles a year are written about the Queen? Actually, brand finance has written up a study and valued the British monarchy as a brand, fourth biggest brand in the world after Apple, Amazon, and Google. So there's those stats, but actually someone who's going to put their hand in their pocket and pay five ninety nine and subscribe and remain a subscriber, we didn't really know, you know, and we didn't really know it was going to be more historical, more modern royals, royals around the world. What are people going to really consume, uh, the ones that are sticky, and what are they going to want more of? What should our talk show be about? And so on and so forth. So we, we had data. We had a D2C service, a web service, streaming through a, a platform that we white label licensed. 
And that we were able to collect the data and see what was being viewed, where people would drop off in each program, what they cared about, uh, the ones that would stay, the ones that would dip in and out, and the ones that would take an annual subscription. And from that, we learned a lot about marketing, how to bring them in, but we learned about what to license, what to produce, what to commission. And therefore, with every subscriber that came in, you refine your investment strategy, both for marketing and basically the business optimizes from the day you go live and you say, wow, we have our first 17 subscribers, you can already start optimizing. And that's what we did. And by the time we started to talk to the major distributors, which is a core part of our strategy and what I had learned elsewhere, is to get people that already have major audiences, royal or otherwise, like Amazon, like Comcast, Xfinity in the States, Roku or otherwise, by the time we were out speaking to them, we are able to say, you know, with some certainty, this is what they want to watch. There's a lot of them, but there's segments of them. There's different demographics for different interests. And this is what you can market to bring them in. But this is what they watch when they're retained. And we're still optimizing today. It's the most amazing sort of technologically driven story, because it strikes me as, as you say, you know, a lot of your business depends on, on sort of two-way data collection. The two-way bit being, you know, you're collecting data on your audience and, and optimizing, as you say. Could you have created True Royal TV 20 years ago? No, not in the way we've just talked about it. I think you, you don't have the infrastructure to reach a global audience, for one. It just doesn't work that way. You have to put up satellites, lay down cable. You can't transfer video files. It's, you know, how many places do you have to ingest? It's just not practical. The licensing paradigm and owning the controlling the content issues on that level as well. But I, again, as a marketer, what I would say, the collision between digital marketing and television is what's interesting to me. It's been done locally. It's been imitated locally. But truly, you know, the full power of the Internet, how it impacted reading, you know, 20 years ago, is impacted television today. And that ability to be efficient in finding, reaching, identifying, pleasing the audience, uh, there's just no way you could come anywhere close to it. I think that, I mean, my initial reaction when I came across your business and read your deck was this is, this is quite niche. But actually, again, if you go back to 20 years ago, there would always be a royal bit in celeb magazines. Yeah, The demand picture hasn't really changed. It's just the way you're delivering it. And I wonder... You know, with that in mind, what does the competition look like? How easy is it to replicate your model? It's not that easy. It's like, like any, we have a first mover for sure, advantage, and we're well on. We have the distribution. There's not likely to be four or five royal channels on Amazon Prime. So there's that. But my partner, as I say, the, the access to the content, the know-how, it's not, it's not easy to pull off and it's not easy to pull it off with multiple, you know, as much in Monaco, as in Spain, as in the Nordics with their royal family. It's just, it's a pretty specialized thing. And then our advisors and shareholders, who I'm not allowed to disclose publicly, that have previously had roles in the royal households, advise us. You know, it's quite a specialized thing. So people can put some royal content out there. Publishers all over the world put out royal content every day. But to have the credibility and editorial capacity and access that we have, is rare. And so that's, I think, the, the sustainable access of it. You, you referred to the, this is always 
been highly in demand. We, if you look at the most watched television programs of all time on Wikipedia and you put aside sports events, they're all royal events. You know, there's Diana's funeral, William and Kate's wedding, Charles and Diana's wedding. They're the top watched TV shows globally of all time, all of them, right? And unless you say, okay, it's the opening of the Beijing Olympics, all right, you get quite a lot of people to tune in. But that's what it is in terms of interest. A lot of people say it's silly and no one's really interested and monarchies need to go away. It's not true. People are fascinated. They rely on it. They rely on it like some people rely on the NFL in Dallas. You know, there's someone else in that household that's sitting in a different room with their iPad watching a documentary on Princess Margaret or finding out what happened before the wedding of Meghan and Harry or Eugenie, for that matter. I suppose the other key point is that and from a business perspective, is that, you know, with NFL or, or and the Olympic Games, the rights to that content are incredibly expensive. I wonder how the, the royalties, small r, work with the royalty, capital R, zero, pen intended. Well, um, it was, again, one of the reasons I loved the business as we were designing it, because, I, you know, you look at the various costs, tech, production, talent, you know, and you start to think about, wow, you know, the Hey You's launched by NBC Universal. They've got the Kardashian franchise and the Housewives of Beverly. They've got these incredible, powerful brands underneath NBC Universal, Hey You, Bravo brand. You know, how do you compete with that? Well, we have the queen. She's the second most respected person in the U.S. all time after Martin Luther King. You know, that's how she's regarded. And you, you have the queen, right? And we don't pay the queen. We don't pay. We have no talent payments. We have no arrangement with the queen, right? And so that, again, as a marker, is a pretty unfair advantage. Meghan, Catherine, Henry VIII was our most clicked on royal in the Amazon marketing environment in October. Henry VIII is still pulling. I think he would be delighted by that. I think, he, would, you know, if Henry VIII was alive today and he knew how many clicks he was getting on Amazon, I think he would be... Well, that's, I'm sure that's what he's wondering right now, yeah, thinking yeah, of the exactly. click-through rate. <laughs> the, the cool thing connected to that story, though, is another thing, and sorry to bore you, but all, this, this is my passion. But no, 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 you have modern entertainment that take these stories and dramatize them. Spencer, The Crown, Downton Abbey. There's a Broadway musical around Henry VIII's wives. So why in October was everyone clicking? on our Henry VIII's documentaries. It turns out, I didn't even know, in New York, the lights are on, everyone's being advertised to about this musical on Broadway. So the awareness of Henry VIII in America is through the roof. We happen to have licensed some content on Henry VIII, and everyone wants it and watches it. And we know the next Downton Abbey is coming. We know the next season of The Crown's coming. We know which characters are going to be introduced or covered when we are first running the business. All people wanted was Margaret. Margaret was so hot on the crown that she, by the way, some of our partners in the U.S. thought she was an invention of Hollywood. So no, no, there's a real person. The queen's sister is a real person. And we couldn't get enough content about Margaret because of the interest that had been generated. And Gregor, moving on to the sort of business itself, I know that you're, you're in the process of, of another round of financing. Before we sort of get on to the sort of mechanics of fundraising itself, I wonder you know, when you raise, how will you allocate that capital? What's the sort of pinch point of your business at the moment? What's stopping you growing? Well, initially, 
you know, we had to do some fundamentals. There was a level of tech. There was business development. We were paying very modest, non-exclusive fees for content because we wanted to demonstrate it's going to be something like this. And we went very easy with, you know, Facebook tests, spending 25 quid a day or 50 or whatever. That's all amped up. And it's now heavily in content, heavily in marketing. And our revenue covers our operations and other activities. So it's really from one month to the next, how much do we want to throttle our growth through more content, more exclusive content, more original content? And how quickly do we want to bring subscribers in to drive the recurring revenue model? It's a mark- content marketing business. That's what it is, 100%. If it's a content marketing business, presumably a key metric here is, is cost per acquisition. And if you're going direct to consumer, do you get a sense of what your cost per acquisition is relative to going selling to Comcast or, or Amazon? You know, I'm just trying to get a sense of the quality of the business across the channels. Our team will say that I have an hourly sense of our cost of acquisition across every channel, <laughs> how, how we think about it because they're not all seamless funnels. And because we have a niche, by the way, which is a word I love, because to me, it doesn't mean small. It means focus, profitable, efficient. I know what I love. You don't necessarily have a royal funnel of royal fans that leads directly to a television environment where you watch the TV channel. Not until recently. And so we had the most efficient environment to engage a royal fan might be Facebook, a Google ad, People Magazine, or People.com. But where do you take them? And so you have to migrate them. Who are these people? You know, who's true royalty? I'm not going to give them my credit card. It's a bit of a clunky conversion, but engagement's highly efficient, clunky conversion. Then we have a relationship with Comcast or other cable providers in the States where you have incredible conversion capability, where it's one click, add on a channel, but you can't engage royal fans. So we struggled to engage, convert very easily. In the other environment, super easy to engage, but where do you take them efficiently? Now we're working with Amazon and the Roku channel. They know what all their subscribers on Prime or in the Roku channel watch. They know if they've watched Downton Abbey. They know if they've read, frankly, a book on the Kindle about Diana. So you can identify and engage royal fans incredibly efficiently and convert them with one click as an add-on channel in Amazon Prime, that's nirvana. It's total nirvana, game-changing for us because you have the perfect collision between television and digital marketing. And then it's vast. 42% of royal fans in the US, which is 69 million adult Americans, if you can believe it, 42% of them are already paying Amazon Prime subscribers. So they're already in and buying other stuff and we just have to engage them. It's an interesting model. And going back to the fundraising side, what doors have you knocked on so far? I mean, what type of investors are you sort of engaging with and what type of investors do you think will be interested in the proposition? Well, we're at a a really important, interesting moment now where we've been backed by private investors, individuals. There, There have been the tax incentives initially as a startup in London and then there's been you know, more and more robust investments coming in through private individuals, high net worth and otherwise. But now we need the validation and the commitment for the long term of institutional investment. And that's happening right now. We've raised substantially, we've raised $20 million US dollars along the way. 
but we've created something. We, we have a bunch of paying subscribers and recurring revenue, but we have a platform, we have distribution, we have a team, we have a unique expertise. So now we need someone to come in and say, I get it. You know, we can take this and it can be 5X, 10X and become a channel in the new environment, just like the way the History Channel became the History Channel in the, in the years of cable. So that's the vision. We need someone who is strategic and wants to do this with us. Or if we're too early for them to own us, then perhaps we need to do a cycle with someone who wants to do a play in the transformation of television and can see just how potent and how huge the niche is for royal fans. Running a business like this must be like spinning plates. I'm wondering how you manage your business and try and raise capital at the same time. I mean, how do you split your time? Do you just not sleep? It's cyclical. And what I'm working hardest on is trying to make the cycles longer. But the cycles you know, of three to six months where you raise some money, which means really you're spending 80, 90% of your time trying to raise money you know, and trying to identify the right partners, to suddenly they say, well, you've got the money. You said you do all these things and you said it would work and you said it's digital, so you should be able to see the metrics hourly to going 80, 90% to execution, but seeing the, you know, you, you've hit the milestones, you've got a great story, it's time to package the pitch again, you're going to run out of money, and the cycle starts again. So I, I sort of, I'm never 50-50, I'm sort of 80 raising money or 80 executing the plan that we've had buy into. And uh, right now, I can tell you, I'm uh, 80% raising money. <laughs> and tell me what the future holds, because... You know, it strikes me as though the addressable market, or you've identified the addressable market, which is huge, and as you say, probably recurring and probably quite low churn, is the future of the business just building and tapping into that and optimizing the platform for said market? Or can you see yourself trying to find other niches? I'm going to use your word niche rather than my word, which I think is vertical. I think there's both. Business A, which is, you know, stick to your knitting and execute, is a royal streaming channel, the first and only global. And that we have a very clear plan, execution plan, and we have a very clear model that'll take us, should take us to a, a very appealing valuation. Then we have a plan to expand our royal platform into other activities, in ranging from tours to merchandise to virtual reality. And that expands upon the royal business plan. We also have friends, very aligned friends that I spent, for example, two hours with yesterday that are in a very similar place with their channels that they've incubated and, and they have traction with. Many have fallen away along the way. They've overinvested in tech or content and forgot that they needed an audience. But some have really hit the mark. I think we've hit the mark. Some that I'm very fond of have hit the mark. And could I see there being a suite coming together around a suite of targeted niche, vertical, however you want to call it, channels that can stand on their own as a proposition and be very, very powerful brands, but also that share the best in class of entrepreneurial spirit, of certain resources and technologies and, and access. I think there's a really good case that could be made for that. So, you know, we're there a SPAC that said we're interested in streaming. We're not going to compete with the massive general interest giants. We'd like to find five verticals and do a play. We're kind of made for that. And we, we have that plan on the back burner, but ready to pull forward at any time. 
if the market's ready for that conversation to happen. In the meantime, we've got to feed true royalty because it's at the stage where it can really take off and it's uh, time for growth capital. What do you think are the real pitfalls in this business? Are there any bear traps? You mentioned overspending on digital, overspending on technology. What can go wrong? I'm just trying to understand. Can you miss the mark perhaps on the content side and people get turned off? Where do you identify the risks in the business? I think if you've built the business around a hypothesis of content versus something that's flexible, that can be tuned and optimized as ours, I, I would never have guessed you know, that there was going to be as little about Megan today as there is. What percentage is Megan? Well, it's a lot less than what I thought it was going to be three years ago. You know, and, and I'm not talking about what we're supplying. I'm talking about the demand and the supply in response to the demand. Right? So if there's no flex around a, a proposition that's f- flexible, then I think you're running a, a big, big risk to just assume that without the knowledge of a broadcaster and years and years and years, and those means say, you guys are going to watch this. This is what I'm giving you. You're going to watch this. You cannot be presumptuous. Again, it's the digital marketing piece. It's actively consuming data before you act. It's doing little moves and pivoting. I think you have to be super nimble. You have to be super attuned to the marketing capabilities that are out there and that have been used for things other than video, you know, over the last 20, 30 years. Technology is 20, 15 years ago, really, you had to probably build your own tech and your streaming platform. It's not the case. It's not commoditized, but there's a lot of very, very good, affordable, white label platforms that you can run your own D2C business on, have the apps that you need, whether you need Xbox or whether you need Roku or whether you just need iOS. You just take bespoke what you want from a supplier like we have, Vimeo, or you can just overspend on content. I think it has to be all original. You have to make everything. It has to be, you know, whatever, millions of dollars an hour. You can imagine what it costs for us to produce an hour versus what it would cost Netflix to produce an hour of a content. I mean, you're talking about hundreds and thousands fold the cost of content that they would have per hour. Do you buy in? I mean, is the model to buy in any content? So, for example, I mean, would you ever buy in that Oprah interview, for example? No. And restream that. That's not the model you don't want to get into. No, we're not going to. Who owns that? That would be, I guess it's CBS commission that. It's just not helpful for us to put that on the service. It's out there. People can watch it. They've seen it. We're here for people that are predisposed to the royals, admittedly. They love them. They they find almost something reassuring about the perpetuity, you know, of this is not someone who's going to lose in an election in three years. It's there's some stability, there's some kindness, some generosity. And, you know, to focus in on the salacious stories or try and amplify them is, is not our role. Others do a good enough job at that. And just taking a step back and sort of moving away from your business and thinking about the sort of content generation business more broadly and, you know, how that content is delivered. In my mind, the customer's in the driving seat here. Yeah, this is great for the customer. They can get great content at a much cheaper price than they would, let's say, 20 years ago, where you had to go through your traditional media channels, where you had to go through your Comcast. I wonder if you can comment, is it possible to comment on where you think it will be in another five years' time? Are we going to have a stack of content providers that we pay directly, like you, for example? Or do you think there's still going to be some sort of intermediation 
as I say, I, I love Amazon, right? I, I just think it makes sense. But Amazon's not the only one doing Amazon. They just, because of who they are, they're a bit further in front in the marketing capability and their reach. But the a la carte SVOD, when you're paying a base price, which is what's been going on for years with cable, right? When I met Comcast, it's, you know, they're, people were cutting the cord, they were debundling, getting rid of big packs. But at the same time, in the other side of the business, they were adding on channels and in fact, the TV invoice was growing, unbeknownst to people that were reporting the demise of Comcast and companies. The pay TV invoice was growing over here for people that had taken down from whatever they were paying with the big provider in the US, 200 a month, taking it down to 80 and thinking, okay, that's great. Everywhere in that household, someone's adding on a channel. So how many subscriptions do you have? And, and I think there's a lot of fallacies out there, but oh, the average household has 4.3 TV subscriptions. It's not true. It's true if you think only of Disney, Netflix, HBO, Hulu, and Amazon Prime. But then you forget that in Amazon Prime, oh, that's right, I added on that thing. I've got three more of those. And Oh, that's true, I have that other app. And I think if you know that they can still spend 200 a month and they brought it down to 50 or 80 or whatever, it's that, there's a lot of room to spend on TV. If a household in the US is spending six hours a day watching television and digital video, there's room, right? And there's a propensity to pay for it. Absolutely sure it's valued, uh, that's for sure. There's still less people reading, arguably, and, and learning through video and getting entertained through video. So I think there's huge headroom. I think the aggregator model makes tons of sense. Everyone, Roku's doing it, Amazon's doing it, Cox is doing it, Sling's doing it, Comgas is doing it. Uh, people in Europe and elsewhere need to do it better, faster. But I, I think that's where it's all going. It's an exciting prospect. Gregor, I've got one final question. We have a lot of younger listeners to this podcast, and I wonder what advice would you give to them? And perhaps they're looking to pursue a career in either advertising or in content production, what advice would you give to them? And what tools do they need to equip themselves in your mind to be successful in your industry? In content production, I think the opportunity is there's a lot of room where the broadcaster jobs were. So everyone that went into BBC and ITV, and there's a lot of room for really interesting jobs, you know, within those companies or outside because that marketing role. As I say, when I met Nick with his content, he said, I don't know how to get it to a consumer. I've got to take it to ITV if I want to get it to, because I can't just make a website. It's true, right? So the, the broadcaster plays a massive, massive, massive role, even if it's not linear TV, but that's fragmenting and happening all over the place. So I would say the passion for television and video of some flavor with marketing now is, is a rich, rich, valuable area. And as it relates to entrepreneurial, be careful what you wish for. But if you want to do it, start young. That's my only, I don't like to say regrets because I've had a lot of good, good times through my career. But I would love to have had my hands on something earlier and, and learned and made mistakes earlier on my own. It's just different. It's the reward and the pain and the angst, but it's life. It's just life experience. Gregor Angus. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Doug. Anytime. Thank you for listening to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guest this week, 
Gregor Angus from True Royalty TV. Now, if you've enjoyed this episode or indeed the series, why not like us, subscribe and let a friend or colleague know. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.